Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad, rubber-coated hardware for a better fit, and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. The following is a production of the Motor Racing Network, the voice of NASCAR. Dale Jarrett is going to win the Daytona 500. So nobody was talking. It was all in my hands as to what I needed to do. Wallace spins. Wallace's car goes on its nose. It went in the air, hit the ground, then flew back up, and I flew over the start-finish line. The Motor Racing Network presents the 1993 season, 25 years later. Mark Martin riding an unbelievable winning streak. I didn't realize when I won it because we were on such a roll. It was 10 years or 15 probably before I realized that I had won the Southern 500. The race winner, Rusty Wallace, and the championship driver, Dale Earnhardt, each carrying flags, honoring their fallen friends, Alan Kulwicki and Davey Allison. Davey and Alan Kulwicki were on everybody's mind all year long, right to the very end. And we always had those flags in our truck. From the Motor Racing Network studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Susie Armstrong. Welcome to part two of MRN Presents the 1993 season, 25 years later. In this episode, we'll revisit three pivotal races that followed the Daytona 500, Rockingham, Richmond, and Atlanta. In the aftermath of his disappointing 32nd place finish at Daytona, Team Penske driver Rusty Wallace had a steep hill to climb. According to Wallace, the poor result seemed like a continuation of a dismal 1992 season, prompting team owner Roger Penske to contemplate pulling out of NASCAR competition altogether. We knew that Roger was used to winning. Here's a guy that's won 16 Indy 500s now. And uh, this was a guy used to winning. And he really went out on a limb to start this team. He wanted to real bad. Uh, and then when the opportunity happened, we took off. And I'll tell you, at the end of 92 season, he, he approached me. He wanted to quit. He wanted to turn the team over to Don Miller and myself and just get out of it. Because the whole the look of it, the way we were performing, everything was not up to his standards. It really wasn't. And I said, look. I could have went to work for Junior Johnson right now, and I, I and I turned that down to go to work for you because it's Team Penske, and I wanted to be with this team really bad. So I, and so the word I used uh, was don't spin out on me now. Don't give up on us now. Don't spin out. And I got mad. I mean, I got screaming at him, and he'll tell you the same thing. And so I said, okay, let's go. And so we went in with a little pressure from Penske, knowing if we're going to continue on, we got to get our act together. And we really got our act together. And uh you know, when it was done that year, we had a lot of wins. For Dale Earnhardt, a second-place finish in the Daytona 500 tied him for the lead in the championship standings. But to be a title contender, new crew chief Andy Petrie knew that the communication between he and Earnhardt needed some work. You, I learned something about him and about how he described the way his car was handling. The whole time at Daytona, it was a different, you know, it's a kind of a different type race. It's not a downforce thing. You're not really chasing the balance so much. But he kept saying he was neutral. No, this race car has been really good all week, and uh, we was a little neutral there. To me, neutral was not pushing, not loose. Pretty good, right? So he had been saying that at Daytona, and if I'd understood his terminologies, you know, the week before, we might have had a better shot at winning the 500. I was on the truck, and he goes out, 
during a practice session gets gets completely sideways and it's visible. I mean, I'm try, you can see looking at the infield. I'm like, holy cow, man, that thing's sideways. And he came in. I said, man, I said, your car, you're really that thing was sideways two, three, and four. He said, I told you I was neutral. And I went, what? <laughs> Does that mean loose? <laughs> that, so. That's kind of what he meant by saying neutral. He didn't mean that the car was good. He meant it was loose. (laughs) So that helped me understand more. And our communication started getting better uh, during that weekend. And, and we, you know, we did pretty good by finishing second. Heading to the Sand Hills of North Carolina for the GM Goodwrench 500 at Rockingham Speedway. Most people were looking in the direction of Kyle Petty to win again at the Rock. After all, he'd won from the pole in three of the last six races there. But that fortune ended in 1993. Sometimes you get overconfident. You know, you get to think, oh, man, I can go back with the same car and the same stuff. Uh, it's different. It's different. The racetrack changes. Uh, things change. So I think for us, we just missed it. Um, and sometimes that happens, man. Um, and then you got to figure out how to get back. And it, sometimes you find it again, and sometimes you don't. I mean, uh, I can name a million drivers. Jimmy Johnson at Charlotte. Things like that, where he was king of the hill, and all of a sudden it went away one. And, and they've struggled to get it back. They run competitive, but they've struggled to get that dominance back. So I, I think at that point in time... and. and didn't make any difference. We weren't worried about it. We we felt like coming out of 92 and coming into the first part of the year, you're going to have bad races, you're going to have good races. Another favorite was Roush Racing's Mark Martin. The veteran won the pole for the 500-mile Sunday Clash and drove to victory lane on Saturday in the NASCAR Xfinity race. It's an understatement to say Rockingham was a place that Martin knew well. I can close my eyes and I can run Rockingham and and I know where the rise, you know, I, can, I feel the rise and the, the looseness into turn one and the rise in the racetrack entering the corner. And, and I can feel what the car felt like when you hooked the left front tire uh, right down, go, you know, entering one when you hooked it down right on the white line. Um, it was like uh, additional glue. Um, it, it just uh, it just hooked. The car hooked and it was worth 1500s uh, a lap over two feet. If you were two feet high, higher there, it'd probably be 15100s. I mean, it just didn't hook uh, the same. And a lot of the guys ran all over that racetrack. It took some discipline to hook that left front down there. And Kyle Petty uh, spanked our bottoms seriously for a couple of years there doing that. And uh, I pay attention. <laughs> so before the days of, of, of sharing the... Uh, the data like like they have today. I just uh, stood there and watched and listened and paid attention and, and uh, learned to do that myself. Up front, there's been a change and there's quite a battle going on up there over in turn three. Mark Martin just slung his way around Ernie Irvin a lap ago to take the lead. Well, it was the right size. My, my specialty turned out to be one to one and a half mile racetracks. Because my my I, as I developed as a driver, I developed a, a specialized focus and talent of ro- rolling the center of the corners really really fast, uh, which required a really loose race car, which did not work on little racetracks because on little racetracks where you had to accelerate off the corner as well as had the cornering forces, it was too much for the right rear tire. So I could get away with running an, an, a, a really extra free race car. Long story short, Rockingham and Darlington, uh, the pavement there, always the, ag- the aggregate was always left and the, the black stuff always went away. And so there was nothing sticking up but uh, sharp rocks 
and um, and so you had to carry your tires over to the car. You couldn't roll them because if you rolled them on the on that asphalt over to the car, they'd they'd slow down a tenth just getting them up on the car. So tire uh, degradation was insane at those two racetracks. Martin finished the day in fifth as Rusty Wallace captured his first victory of the season. Rusty Wallace behind the wheel, Buddy Parrott and the fellas behind pit wall. They combined for Wallace's third win here at Rockingham. The Goodwrench 500 goes to Rusty Wallace. Rockingham was more in my wheelhouse. I, I remember we tested at Rockingham with that car. We went down there and did a lot of testing to make sure and that was all part of having a better 1993 season we did a lot of testing we we made it we put a pretty aggressive test schedule together to get everything together right and we went down there uh, and unloaded at Rockingham I remember the car really was stuck good and handled well and I went wow I'm back into my comfort zone you know because Daytona was kind of a you know that's restrictor plate style racing it that'll take a, a car that's bad and make it good and then it can. There's some drivers that are just better on speedway racing than others. But when we got the Rockingham, again, I had a lot of self confidence. I felt as though that I was as good as anybody down there, and I went into that race with a lot of confidence because the test went so well. And then once we, you know, got into it and started running, it, it became quite evident that we had a real hot rod, and and what we planned on was coming true. You know, the preparation. Wallace's crew chief, Buddy Parrott, summed up the secret to their 1993 success, lightning fast pit stops. Let's follow the stop of the leader, Rusty Wallace. The two black cars, Rusty Wallace and Dale Earnhardt, come to a stop on pit road. Right side rubber for both automobiles. Rusty Wallace car first out. And that was, you know, a lot of people don't know, but that was a lot of the reason why we won so many races. Because when we pitted, you know, we had them covered. We had them covered by two, three seconds. And all it was was a group of guys that really wanted to get the job done, and we did a lot of practice. Dale Earnhardt took command of the points lead with his second-place finish at the Rock. Although no one knew at the time, this would be the first of many battles between Rusty Wallace and Dale Earnhardt. The next stop on the Cup Series schedule was Richmond Raceway for the Pontiac Excitement 400. Robert Yates Racing's Davey Allison entered the weekend 18th in the series standings. The feeling among team members was if they were going to make a bid for the championship in 93, a win was needed sooner than later. According to crew chief Larry McReynolds, the team accidentally got a little too aggressive with the setup that day. For the second time in his career, Davey Allison will win here at Richmond International Raceway. Win number one of the 1993 season for the Texaco Haviland team. And I'm sure on pit road, Jim Phillips it's like a weight has been lifted from the shoulders of that crew. Yeah, it's it's kind of a funny story, and I, I I can I can share this today. I went several years before I would share this, but we had spent a lot of time in the wind tunnel, and we were starting to find little little things that would help the arrow of the race car, especially downforce. And we had found we're turning some gurney lips just in front of the front tires and in front of the rear tires at the wheel opening. Just subtle little little lips really helped the front and rear downforce. And we even made a special tool that our tire guy, just before uh, the car left pit road to, to go out and start the race, when he was checking the air in the tires, he would be checking the air with one hand and taking this little tool and turning gurney lips with the other hand. And I know after the race, or after the, the race started, uh, when they were, well, they were still on the pace laps, 
the tire guy came to me and he said, Larry, I got the gurney lips turned. He said, I looked after I did it, and I may have got a little bit aggressive. And I went, well, how aggressive? He said, well, yeah, it's it's pretty aggressive. So, we, we you know, we're leading the race, leading the race, and I've always, no matter what, you, you never count on winning until you know the checkered flag is waved and you're the first one to take it. But I guess as we were leading late in that race with 20, 25 laps to go, I got to thinking about those gurney lips. It's like, oh, my gosh, we're going to win this race. And they're going to drop the hammer on us because of these gurney lips. So I kind of slid over to the toolbox, and I took a pair of pliers and stuck them in my back pocket. And sure enough, we win the race. Car pulls in victory lane. And if you look at a few pictures uh, of victory lane that day, you don't see me because I'm down on my hands and knees turned, trying to get those gurney lips turned back out of those wheel openings. And he was right. He got very aggressive. And Jeff Clark, who was our jack man, uh, who sometimes tons of smart sense, but sometimes common sense didn't prevail, as I was down there taking those gurney lips out with those pliers, he looked down at me and in, in a, a very loud voice says, I was wondering why you were putting those pliers in the back of your pocket. It's like, stop, just stop. I, I, I've got something I'm trying to do here. Well, after the fa- uh, first two weeks of the season, you need this as a stepping stone to start back on a championship run. Well, we did have a rough start, but, uh, you know, these guys are the most enthusiastic bunch I've ever worked with, and i got to hand it to them because they never gave up on me. We got some funny-looking tire sheets yesterday, and I told Larry I just wasn't going to pay any attention to them. Let's just do what it takes to make this car drive like we want it to, and here we are in victory lane. You know, I knew that even though we won that race and it was early in the year, I still knew we were not where we needed to be. And, and a number of races after that uh, continued to prove to me that we still at tracks we normally automatically ran well at, we just were missing something. Uh, but I, I go back to what I said earlier. It was not that we had lost ground. I just think the competition had really caught up to us. After poor finishes at Daytona and Rockingham, Kyle Petty needed to get his team pointed in the right direction as well. And he did so by leading the most laps and finishing fifth on the three-quarter mile oval. They are stacked up double wide this time. Kyle now gets the advantage coming up off the corner. Using the inside line, Kyle Petty goes into the lead as they enter turn three. We went to racetracks thinking we could run in the top four or five. That's how simple it was. You know, you had Earnhardt, you had Rusty, you had Mark, you had a number of guys uh, but you felt like, and we felt like at Sabco, um, and, and with the group we had, that we could run with any of them week in and week out. We might not beat them every week, but they weren't going to beat us every single week either. There were going to be times when, when we came out on top. So I know a lot of times we would go to racetracks and we would be better the first half or better the second half. Uh, and I know we worked on that that year to try to put whole races together. We struggled with putting whole races together. Between those two men, Darrell Waltrip and Kyle Petty, there are seven victories here at Richmond, although all seven came on the old, now dearly departed Richmond Fairgrounds raceway layout. I like the old Richmond. I got to go back and say I like the old Richmond. Just the flat, slick guardrail um, and that that type. And obviously that's where where I want to race back with the Wood Brothers. But um, the new configuration, uh, I, I liked it, but not as much as the old racetrack. 
After winning at Rockingham the week prior, Rusty Wallace turned in another podium finish, driving his number two, Team Penske Pontiac, home to second. Rusty Wallace, meanwhile, he's still a goodly distance behind with his two laps to go. I think everybody is hitting around on the head here. David's going to ride right in behind those cars ahead of him. He won't force the issue. It virtually would be a major miracle at this point for Rusty Wallace to track him down with a lap and a half to go. Going in there, that was a race that was definitely on our our, our a plan that we, we went in there thinking we are going to win. We really did. So to finish second and to come out of it with a victory then have a second place right after that uh, was a, a real exciting time. But I will tell you, I probably expected to win Richmond more than I expected to win Rockingham. So to have a second place finish was, it was a good deal for Team Penske. They were gaining points right now. We're on the track to going for uh, our goal. That's a championship. And so a second place at Richmond was, uh, was I left out there going, okay, that was cool. That's good. I thought I'd win, but that was cool. For Rusty's brother, Kenny Wallace, the day ended on a tragic note as an accident on the final lap sent him to the hospital. Trouble here is Kenny Wallace and Bobby Hamilton got together here coming out of turn number four. Hamilton running in 22nd, Wallace in 26th, but they were not on the same lap and they got together coming out of turn number four and totally wrecked two race cars here as they crossed the start-finish line. That moment at Richmond was mind-boggling, one of the worst times of my physical health. So let me back up and tell you what happened. Uh, first of all, that's a good track for me, Richmond. We've won three, you know, Xfinity races there. We're getting towards the end of this race, and uh, I look in my mirror, and uh, I, I'm racing somebody for 15th or 16th, and maybe it, was, maybe it was Bobby Hamilton. And I remember trying to get up in line. I was on the bottom, and the outside lane was rolling. I remember trying to get up. And, and I made a mistake, and and Bobby Hamilton, uh, his left front, and, and it was my fault. I got up, and I turned myself, and this is at the checkered flag, right? And it's a big wreck, and the race is over, and uh, they bring us inside, you know, the garage area. And uh, I remember to this day my crew chief, Jeff Hammond, uh, saying, Kenny, do you know what? Uh, our crew member's name and I'm like why is he asking me that and and I couldn't I couldn't remember his name and I said I don't know and he comes walking over and he puts his arm around me and Jeff Hammond takes me to the infield care center so what had happened was back in 93 uh, they would use two by fours wood they would use wood to lock the weight in place in our frame rails so if you needed weight we called it lead at the time. It was not tungsten. It was called lead. And we would put lead towards the front or rear of the car, and we would use two-by-fours wood to keep the lead from going back and forth. Well, the headers caught the wood on fire, and the car had been smoldering the whole race. The, the, the smoke would come up through the car, and it had a—and then, the, and then the, the headers, too. Bottom line is I had carbon monoxide poisoning. They took me by ambulance after that race to the Richmond Hospital. And, and I mean, just like that story about Michael Jackson, the singer, right? They they take all my clothes off, make sure I have nothing metal on me. I'm naked. And I'm just with this, you know, hospital robe on. And they put me in this 100% oxygen chamber. 
and I'm in there for an hour breathing pure oxygen. You know, of course, there's stories 100 years ago where, you know, they make mistakes and somebody has metal and, you know, you blow yourself up. And uh, so, uh, yeah, they, they cleaned me up and, uh, and and got me back to health. But, uh, boy, that that's when I learned about, uh, you know, carbon monoxide poisoning. But, you know, I mean, and then... Years later, I realized how lucky it was because, you know, that's what ended Rick Mass' racing career. A lot of these race car drivers, years ago, they were, we were all wearing, at the time, open-face helmets. And we were just breathing everything in, thinking we were tough. And we were, actually, we were a bunch of dummies. We didn't know. We had no knowledge. And that's what happened at Richmond, was I had carbon monoxide poisoning. Started getting just a little bit delirious. But what's crazy is I remember every moment of the race. But when the race was over... Uh, You know, if it weren't for that wreck at the end, I'd have probably went right on home. As the checkers fell in Richmond, Dale Jarrett took command of the standings over Dale Earnhardt by a single point. The next stop on the Cup Series Tour was Atlanta Motor Speedway, but the green wouldn't fly in Georgia for a solid week. Compliments of the blizzard of 93, dumping four inches of snow on the super speedway. Perhaps one of the great storms of the century is now underway, and the warnings have been heeded. People taking preparations in some unusual spots, including Atlanta, Georgia. Dale Earnhardt's crew chief, Andy Petrie. Yeah, we were staying in Atlanta. In the uh, right by the airport, and so we left. I guess we left the night before. It was cold, obviously, but not snowing. And then it snowed overnight, and we have to try to get back to the track. And it's snowing so hard. And we go early. I think I remember going pretty early, but we almost didn't get there because the roads were getting so bad. And you know, they called the race by the time I think we got there. And. Then it was difficult just to get the cars to the gar- to the from the garage to the hauler. We had to shovel snow to just make a path to try to get the cars loaded. So we get those, and and then I guess we had flown a team plane there, so we didn't have a ride home. We couldn't fly in this stuff, so we go back to the hotel and stay another night. I think maybe a night or two to, before we actually got home. Bill Davis Racing's Bobby Labonte. I think the one thing I do remember about the. The blizzard is the fact that we were, you know, as far as a new team goes and, you know, we, I think, you know, kind of gave us an extra week to, to kind of get more prepared on things like that. But probably one of the biggest things I remember is that I think I hung out with my brother for a little bit and a friend of ours, Billy Siler, doing donuts out in the parking lots of places, you know, and probably, yeah, probably causing a little havoc that you probably couldn't do today. <laughs> so I guess I do remember that more than the than the actual blizzard at the racetrack other than, you know, hanging out and can't, can't do much. Sabco Racing's Kenny Wallace. It literally snowed real. Like, we're talking five inches. It's like it was a real s- snow out. I'd qualified good. We were locked in the race. And, you know, they're they're predicting the snow. And, my gosh, did it come. It was a full-blown s- snow. And uh, we barely got out of Atlanta. We left the cars and everything there. And uh, we we simply went home. I mean, it, it was gridlock. It, it pretty shut down the whole city of Atlanta. Sabco Racing's Kyle Petty. I remember every restaurant and the hotel we were in ran out of food. The only place... And, and I learned this. In case of nuclear attack, go to Waffle House. They always have food. Okay, Waffle Houses always have food. It, it, it is funny. There was a path from the hotel that we were at uh, over to the Waffle House and back where everybody just took shifts going to Waffle House to eat. Somehow, in those small buildings, they have huge amounts of food. I will say that. But, um, you know, it was crazy. Uh, but that's the way that's, you know, I, I can tell you in my lifetime. I remember going to Daytona 
and not being able to get home because it had been an ice storm uh, between home and, and, and Daytona. Uh, and we'd have to stop in Georgia and spend the night or stop in South Carolina and wait until daylight to be able to drive home and stuff. So it seemed like, you know, that's when the race schedule we went from what could be warm Daytona or what could be freezing Daytona to freezing Rockingham, freezing Richmond, and freezing Atlanta. That's the way it was. And, and their infinite wisdom, they never changed the schedule. They just said, oh, next year will be better. Let's go back and try it again. And it never really got better. Now the, the schedule obviously has changed. Um, but I, I think that was the big deal in, in Atlanta was, for us, it wasn't the racetrack. It was how are we going to get home and how are we going to eat. Jeff Gordon's crew chief, Ray Evernham. Well, believe it or not, we, we, we got to the racetrack. And the funny part of that, I will never forget this. You know, Alan Kowicki, uh, his car wasn't as good as he wanted it to be in qualifying or practice because we got some track time. But they were there in the snow. It's snowing, and they were setting the bump steer on the front of his car, and he had his helmet and everything on. It was so cold, and they finally came through and made us put our cars in the in the haulers and for everybody to just leave. But I'll never forget that. You know, we got we fought to get to the racetrack. I don't know why. I don't know what we thought we were going to race on. And Alan was out there working on his car with his helmet on. Davey Allison's crew chief, Larry McReynolds. Well, I, I know it. It it's well documented that that Alan Kowicki. Uh, was there that Saturday morning, you know, working on his car in a blinding snowstorm. And I- I'll never understand who designed that old garage area Atlanta because they put doors on one side of it and didn't put doors on the other side of it. It's like, did you run out of money before you could get doors on both sides? But we we were in trouble, too. And I remember driving to that racetrack Saturday morning, and, I mean, it was obvious there was nothing going to happen on Saturday and more than likely nothing going to happen on Sunday. But I remember we were staying uh, up near I-75 and we loaded in that van and, and, you know, the guys were kind of asking, what are we doing? I said, we have to go out there and get to work on this race car. And we did. We went out there and I can remember weighing that car and measuring that car and change, making major changes to that car. And I mean, the snow was just blowing in on us in the garage area. But I knew we we needed to be ready if something changed. Even though in the back of my mind, it's like, I don't see how in the world we could race here before about Wednesday or Thursday. And so we, we, we got the car kind of halfway done, and then that's when they called everything. And I remember loading that car up uh, on the tailgate. And again, the snow had kind of stopped a little bit. But, I mean, it was snow everywhere, and, and we went back to the hotel because I think I-85 was closed, and a lot of us had our families, and we were staying at a Hampton Inn there in Jonesboro, and we just went back to the hotel and, and ate pizza and just stayed there, and finally Sunday morning about noontime is when the roads cleared up enough for us to make our way back home. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's like it was one of those deals. I knew that there was no way we were going to race, and definitely we're not going to hit the racetrack on Saturday, but I guess I just was so frustrated and so aggravated and so determined to try to figure out what we could do to fix this race car for Davey. Here we are out there in a blinding snowstorm working on that 28 car. Armed with an extra week of preparation, the Cup Series teams returned to Atlanta Motor Speedway for the running of the Motorcraft 500. For Morgan Shepard and the number 21 Wood Brothers Racing Ford, the weekend started out rough. Well, I remember how we got started during practice. Uh, Lynn Wood was really pumped up about her engine. Uh, 
I think he said it had something like 25 more horsepower than the engine was running. And I went out in practice, and uh, my goodness, I was getting blown away down straight away. I went back in. I said, hey, y'all need to put our old engine back in. That, that thing won't run. And uh, we put the old engine back in it, and then we run right with everybody down straight away. But it's real weird how, how the dyno will, it gives you a baseline. But I always found that you had, you had to look at the, the torque of the engine because the torque, even though you're not sitting there running 6,500, if you've got an engine that makes more torque than one of the other ones, that's the engine you need to put in. Uh, and it's showing the big numbers on the, the top end. I've never found that to really work. When the green flew, Mark Martin dominated the first half of the race, ultimately leading 140 of the 328 laps. And as Mark Martin works out of turn number two and heads down the back straightaway, he is beginning to open a little daylight on Rusty Wallace, about eight or ten car lengths. I am uh, surprised that we led the race uh, and dominated the race in, in Atlanta because that would have been a major downforce kind of racetrack. And um, I know... Our bodies could have been better because our roof height was, our roof height on, on that car would have been 50, 51 and a quarter to 51 and three eighths, probably even 51 and three eighths. And the rule was 50 and a half. And when you left the quarter panels at 35 and 36 across the back and you drop that roof three quarters of an inch, the nose dropped, you know, an inch and a half or inch and a quarter and you started making some serious downforce and we were you know we were we were high on our roofs at that time because jack put so much emphasis on horsepower that nobody in the in the race shop believed that he would uh okay taking carburetor spacer off and it's like i don't care about carburetor spacer i won't build a body build a race car and then when i get done i'm gonna put a motor in it whatever it takes and believe it or not, Jack Roush was the same way. It's like, well, we, you know, because Jack really was up on downforce because he had learned that from road racing before he even started with us. And so he he supported that theory, but we were a little late into the season before we got it. But once we got it, we we put the hammer down and. And win four in a row. While out front, Martin's luck turned sour, and engine failure sent him to the garage and out of contention on lap 226. Mark Martin off the pace out of turn number two in front of Joe Moore. Mark Martin drops to the inside of the track. Can't tell from here if the car's still running or not, but he's still well off the pace down towards turn three. He is down on the apron of the track. Rusty Wallace sweeps by into the lead with Morgan Shepard right on his deck. Can't tell if the car is running. Trailing a little wisp of smoke behind it, though, as Martin heads for the pit lane. Um, it was not uh, exclusive to 93. Our, our engine troubles were, uh, from, the, from the beginning in 88, were, you know, uh, an issue for us. We Jack was constantly battling to to make more power, and when you're trying to um, blaze a new frontier, you know you're you're always gonna you're gonna have that. And back in that day, in that day and time, everyone had some engine trouble 
but we had a lot, and we had a lot of heartbreaks. In the closing laps, Jeff Gordon was in position to win his first career Cup Series race, as Ray Evernham remembers. 316 laps are on the scoreboard, and the leader is in the pits. Jim Phillips. Well, he's uh, pulled away from his pit stop. Now they're going to have to back him up. The rookie went over the line. They put the gas in, and he went over had to back up. He lost quite a bit of time, eight seconds on the pit stop for Jeff Gordon. Should have been about three. Lost about five seconds because he went over the front line of the pit. I oh, no, remember exactly what we were just talking about it this morning. You know, you, you, you remember more about the ones you lost than you than you, you won. But we should have won that race. Um, everybody thought we couldn't make it on fuel mileage, but that's not true. You know, we, we had the fuel mileage covered, but we had a loose right rear wheel. And we had to pit early, and that really took us out of the fuel window. We had to pit about seven or eight out laps earlier than we wanted to, but uh, we were fast that day. You know, Jeff got up on, on top there and started rolling around Atlanta. And, and again, it just wasn't meant to be, but it was a loose wheel, not, not a fact we didn't have enough gas. Veteran Morgan Shepard was strong and raced with the leaders all day. As the laps wound down, an unscheduled pit stop became a blessing in disguise. The whole race there, everybody thought Mark Martin was quickest car because he was up early. The problem was with us, we was having terrible pit stops. I mean, it was like uh, 23 seconds and when uh, the other teams was uh, knocking off the the 18 second, I think, in that time, 17, 18 second. So we spent the whole day catching up and, and of course, they talked about Mark uh, being so fast. We was the fastest car. Nobody was just really recognizing it. Because I had to run guys every time I made pit stop, I had to uh, come from behind. So uh, when it uh, it was getting down towards the the end of the race, I told the guys there last pit stop there that uh, we just take gas. Anyway, we made a few laps and uh, we cut a right front tire down. I cut it down just as it went by the fourth turn where we where we come into the pits so I had to limp it on around. But Morgan Shepard is slowed up in turn number one. He's drifted to the outside of the racetrack. He may be out of fuel. The car just barely running here as it bypasses us off turn two. We changed I think eight laps before we were supposed to change. And so uh went back out, made a few laps and Eddie said, Morgan, if you can save enough gas, we can still win this race. That was the old Atlanta and and that that was easy to save gas on that on that track because it was a slick race track and you could make the straightaways very short. And so what I did was I passed a lot of cars, but I got to Brett Bodine, and I just sat there and I, I used very little throttle down the straightaway. And would you believe we? I don't know. They never did say that much about it. They knew I went a long ways on fuel stop. But we went 110 miles on a tank of gas. Morgan Shepard about to collect a victory here at Atlanta Motor Speedway. Here he comes out of turn number four, and the fuel gamble will pay off for Morgan Shepard in the Citco Ford checkered flag, and Morgan Shepard will win here this afternoon. I could not believe that we saved that much gas, but uh, we didn't have a big gas tank. It's just uh, the track suited us for the handling part of it, and uh, I reckon that's why I got three wins there at Atlanta. Atlanta's been good to me. The victory would be Shepard's fourth and final win of his career. Join us next week on MRN Presents, the 1993 season, 25 years later. 
as we remember one of the darkest days in NASCAR history. Yes, it was the Thursday night uh, getting the news that you know, I was in the hotel there and, and getting the news that, that there had been a plane crash and that Allen was involved. And, and you know, it's a different feel around the racetrack whenever we lose uh, someone, especially uh, the, the reigning champion uh, of the sport. Until then, have a great week. Today's program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida. The 1993 season, 25 years later, was written and produced by Rich Colbert. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical underage sale prohibited. Introducing Zone Nicotine Pouches, the perfect balance of unparalleled comfort, longer-lasting flavor, and nicotine that satisfies. Whether you're zoning in during the race or zoning out after a tough day at work, Zone gets you there faster and keeps you there longer. Available in seven flavors and in six and nine milligram strengths. Find Zone at zonepouches.com and retailers near you. Own your Zone with Zone Nicotine Pouches.